Greetings there, all of our loyal deviants and people that just happen to stumble upon us. Welcome to another episode of Dark and Devious. I love that. There are there are two types of people. There are deviants and there are future deviants. There exactly. is no no in between. <laughs> and hopefully, uh, you know, people that find us become those deviants. And yes. you know, we we get them into our 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 little cauldron of followers. <laughs> and I A cauldron put. of followers. Uh well, for first of all, um, for anybody who thinks that this episode sounds a little different, we are uh, doing a distanced episode today. Also, I do not sound my normal self. Uh, I'm a little under the weather, so I am at home trying to stave off, hopefully, just a cold. Uh, so I'm just we're just out of an abundance of caution. Uh, we're recording long distance today, but hopefully we can be back in person soon yeah we only have a couple more episodes where we will be able to be in person no i know then they'll have to be really special episodes when when one of us comes to visit the other yeah and that'll be so fun i've got some you know what i've got some uh airline credit stored up that needs to be used here so I think you might be the first one I go visit. <laughs> I would love that. That would be so fun. And I'd be able to like take you around in our new city. Yeah. We'll find all of the spots where famous crimes have been committed. Well, I could take you to one that we've talked about. Yeah. I mean, obviously I want to go there. I haven't revealed to our audience yet where my new humble abode will be. That's right. But you will all find out soon. Unless you're a good friend of mine, because then <laughs> you've known for months. You might know, yeah. <laughs> oh, but you know what? That reminds me. Speaking of people that I would love to go visit, um, I have to give a little shout out to uh, my friend, John Lutz, who was just recently saying some very nice things about our podcast and recommending us. So thank you so much, John, for listening. He's one of my, one of, part of my, DC area crew that I love so much and don't worry John I'll I'll come out there and visit soon enough I hope yeah so, so thank you for saying such nice things yeah that was really nice of you John and then I want to shout out to Allison Beth who has been like a super fan since she they I don't know their pronouns since they discovered us and so Allison, you, <laughs> a while back, Chris and I jokingly said, like, because we were like, how do we keep track of countries that we've shouted out to? And we were like, we need a super fan to make us a spreadsheet. And it was like <laughs> complete joke. But you stepped up, Allison, and sent an email to our 
our podcast Gmail account and with a Google Doc, which was a spreadsheet of the episodes and what countries we mentioned during the episodes. And you even made this cute little map of the world with dark and devious uh, cover art in the countries that we've been to, which was just super awesome. And it really like, it touched my heart, honestly. Right, that is top-notch fandom. And um, they also have a podcast of their own, right? Yes. uh, um, Rose Tinted Reels, is that? Yep. Was that Uh, right? So Allison and their co-host Zachary host a podcast called Rose Tinted Reels. And if you are a movie buff, a movie fan, or even if you just like the idea of like rewatching one of your favorite films and uh, hearing like little jokes about certain scenes, that's what I did. I went to, of course, the episode of Scream. Ooh, good choice, especially for the season. Uh Uh-huh. And I got to listen along with Allison and Zachary and they had a guest that week and it was really nice to listen to because I was able to like picture the scene that I was hearing because I've seen that movie a a bajillion times I know the script back to back and just to hear the jokes about them like when they're joking about like Tatum's nipples in the garage scene I'm like (laughs) I know those nipples they are absurd um oh my gosh and they just have really great charisma together like uh uh-huh. I, I I I listen to a little bit of their podcast too and uh they, yeah they just have a really great chemistry so they're even even if you just want to like hear uh people who just really know how to talk to each other and you feel like you're in on the jokes mm-hmm. it's it's really a pleasant thing to listen to so yeah uh, definitely so- check out their podcast too yeah, uh, it's it's a good one. So again, thank you, Allison. Yeah, and the least we so can much. do was, you know, promote your content. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because it is. It's fun. It's really fun. Um, let's see what else. Other how ha- um, I I we were talking before we started about um, we I think are just one state short of having been listened to in all fifty states. And we need a listener in Delaware of all places. I know. I mean, Delaware is not that big, but it's bigger than Rhode Island. Right? I know. How do we get a <laughs> listener in Rhode Island before we we got a listener in Delaware? Uh, but yeah, if you if if you know someone in Delaware who likes true crime, send them our way so we can complete our uh, our 50 states of listeners because I mean, gosh, we've gotten DC, we've gotten Puerto Rico. Like w- this little puzzle piece is just missing. We need to fill that in. Yes, uh, but yes, yeah, so that'll be a, a day of celebration when we have reached yes. all 50 states. We don't have any new locations to announce this week. Yeah, no nor, new countries, but. Nor do we have any um, housekeeping or Oh, what's that? Like true crime, true crime updates. updates that we've talked about. Nothing really new has popped up. There's been some new cases pop up, but nothing as to what we spoke about. Which, again, if we're we're still waiting feedback, if if you want to hear more content such as just general true crime banter, we are opening up the possibility of a Patreon account. So. Just let us know either in our socials, um, 
Facebook or Instagram, Dark and Devious Podcast, or email us at darkanddeviouspodcast at gmail.com. And let us know if you would be willing to chip in to some true crime current chit chat and maybe what else you would like to hear on a Patreon. Absolutely. Yeah, we are open to ideas. And Patrick, I'm so proud of you. You're getting so good at doing the and the email and the social media accounts. I remember one time you you said the morbid email address. I did. <laughs> and we had to and we had to like just edit that out. <laughs> because like when I discovered morbid, like that's all I listened to. I just binged it. <laughs> and so like I would always hear like send us an email at blah 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 blah. And then I was just yeah, like yeah. that that script was in my head and I was like, send us an email at <laughs> But and now you're getting good at adapting it to your own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing? Are we just telling people to listen to other podcasts instead <laughs> of our own? Oh my gosh. Could you imagine a podcast of just podcast recommendations? That would be, that would be hilarious. I don't know. What would you even call that? I don't know. I don't, I don't listen know to I'm... anything but me. Like <laughs> <laughs> Anything but me, a podcast of podcast recommendations. Yeah. Feel free, anybody who wants to use that idea. Uh, I'm too busy to have it, to do that. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh, yeah, that'd be that'd be funny. Um, well, awesome. We are at the beginning of spooky season, so I hope you're ready for a seasonally appropriate story today. I'm very excited that October's here, and you know, while looking for my spooky spooktacular tales that I wanted to tell I was like can spooky season just not end because I just yeah I mean there's no no one says that it has to end on October 31st exactly so I've gathered you know a nice little collection that I can sprinkle in some spooky tales every now and then yeah I think that's I think that's good to have a healthy dose of of spooks in the in the recipe that is dark and devious well you are up first for our That's very right. first I, uh, I i hope i will not disappoint so get ready I, to get spooked i'm hoping to be <laughs> shook <laughs> all right chris i've got my popcorn and <laughs> my blanket and the moon is full the wind is howling <laughs> what are you here to tell us today? All right. So today it's not just one story. It's not just two stories, but I have four stories for you today. That's great. And, and, uh, and I'm, I'm going to title this episode Hauntings of the Rich and Famous. Ooh, very cool. <laughs> so in this life, there are bound to be experiences that occur without explanation. Sometimes it's a shadow at the edge of your periphery or a knock in the night, or maybe even as simple as a cold chill down your spine or an uneasy feeling. Whatever the cause, a belief in the existence in ghosts is far reaching. In a 2009 Pew Research poll, nearly one in five US adults claim to have seen or been in the presence of a ghost. 
29% of respondents said that they had felt in touch with someone who had died. And in a Gallup poll, over one third of respondents claimed to believe in the spirits of the dead coming back. So it would be no surprise that notable, notable people would experience the paranormal at the same rate as the rest of the population. Today, in honor of the kickoff of Spooktober, we will be talking about hauntings of the rich and famous. It's like the song uh, Lifestyles. <laughs> it's like hauntings of the rich of and the, the rich famous. famous. <laughs> that was good Charlotte, right? <laughs> I don't know. I think so. My, my, uh, I think my 14 year old self says yes. <laughs> sure. I believe, I believe him. <laughs> Well, we're starting out with a really fun one. Okay. Joan Rivers had never considered herself a believer in the paranormal when she bought her New York City Upper East Side penthouse in 1988 at 1 East 62nd Street. When Rivers moved in, it was a very bad time in her life and her career. She had just been fired from her late night talk show at Fox and her husband, Edgar Rosenberg, had committed suicide with prescription drugs shortly after. To make matters worse, her finances were in shambles. So she left LA where she had been living and recording her late night show for the comfort of her old stomping grounds of New York City. What she found was a unit in a beautiful white stone building that had once been a ballroom. The space was in total disrepair, but the former glory of the space still shone through. Rivers bought the apartment and, and put all of her energy into fixing the place up and getting it the way she wanted. So is it just like, it's just a big ballroom? So um, this, uh, when you think of like a ballroom for like, like a residence, it's not like the same as like a big open room. Like sure, sure there was like a big room, but it had other spaces too. Um, it's just like the place where you would host your party. And then there was also like other rooms on the same floor. Okay. And it's, this building has like a really cool kind of story to it that I'll, that I'll get to in here. Um, so the apartment became a passion project at the exact moment when her life was absolutely broken, which it sounds a little bit like the beginning of a Nicholas Sparks book, like <laughs> woman down on her luck, like, buys run down apartment and is fixing it up. And then that's when she run, like she would, she would like fall in love with a handsome carpenter or something. Either that or a Daniel Steele's novel where the handsome carpenter is a little too easy on the eyes. So then it just becomes a trashy romance, <laughs> lustful yeah. novel. Meanwhile, like both authors are like taking notes as we're talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> Who can get theirs out first? Uh, but as the work went on, Rivers began to notice some odd occurrences. 
One evening, when she came up to visit the apartment to see how the work was progressing, she brought her pet Yorkie along. The dog had never lagged behind before, but when they got to the threshold of the apartment, the dog would not enter. Furthermore, it had been a sweltering August night that evening and the apartment was icy cold. The dog barked, but would not enter. And to top it off, it looked as if someone had scrawled writing all over the walls. And we're talking like angry, horrible, like hateful things all okay, over the Okay, so walls. it was like actual messages. Yeah. Not she not, in the interview, she didn't say specifically what it was, but it sounded like it was just like terrible, nasty stuff. And also like always trust a dog's instinct. Yes. I swear, like if the dog doesn't want to go in, don't go in. No. If a dog doesn't like a, a certain person, you should not like that person. <laughs> right. <laughs> Perturbed and perhaps a bit uneasy, Rivers left the apartment. Back in the elevator, she mentioned these strange occurrences to the elevator operator. So this place was like, this is so posh. Like they had an assigned person to like run the elevator. And there was like a, uh, this particular unit had a private elevator. And wow. it was probably, yeah, it was probably one of those like old school ones where you had to have like the switch held or like, you know, like you basically you needed an actual elevator uh -huh. operator. Yeah. So she mentions the all like these weird things to the 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 elevator operator, uh, and she got a chilling reply. And he said, "Oh, I guess Mrs. Spencer is back." Oh. Dun, dun, dun. So Mrs. Spencer had been a niece of J.P. Morgan, the American financier and banker who towered in that field at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. So knowing that this was a relative of JP Morgan, you know, these folks had money. So this was like a posh, posh place. Originally, the entire building had been the home of Mrs. Spencer. Spencer lived in the house her whole life. And as she got older, she kept moving up floor after floor and renting out the lower floors. By the end of her life, of course, she was living in the ballroom on the top floor, which is exactly the space that Joan Rivers had purchased. Mrs. Spencer had died seven and a half years prior to the sale to Rivers. And it seemed that perhaps she had not fully vacated the premises. Did she die in the unit? I believe she did. I that's what uh, what she said in the interview was that she had, and I assume, I mean, so this was so she bought the property in the late '80s, and so she would have. That means that Mrs. Spencer would have died in like the early '80s, which means that she was probably an old lady. Yeah, because uh, you know J.P. Morgan. That's like end of the 19th century. Uh, so yeah, she probably just died of natural causes in her home. I didn't find anything that suggested foul play or anything, but sometimes we just grow really attached to our spaces. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
It seems the spirit of Mrs. Spencer liked to mess with the tenants of her former home. One neighbor who had an antique chandelier with cherub figures holding the lights came home one evening to find every one of the little cherubs with their heads snapped off. Oh, I love that. Isn't that so spooky? I love uh-huh. it. I love the, and the fact that like cherubs are little angels, it's like, whoa, did a demon uh-huh. do this? The, the feeling in the building was not comfortable and workmen would refuse to stay late and the thermostat was utterly useless at keeping the creeping cold at bay. You want your home to be your haven, Rivers said in an interview. You don't want to not be able to put out your lights at night. So Joan did the only thing she could think to do. She contacted the parapsychology department at New York University. But the university was not a a Ghostbusters service. Rivers was distraught and begged them to help her. And while they couldn't help personally, they were willing to point her in the direction of a voodoo priestess from New Orleans. Desperate for a solution, she called the priestess that night and explained her whole situation. And the woman agreed to come and help in any way that she could. So I think it's really funny that like the parapsychology department at New York University was like, I'm sorry, like we can't get involved with something like this. But they were like, I, we probably shouldn't be like giving this out, but here's somebody else you might be able to talk to. It seemed like it was very much like last resort. Uh-huh. Um, but like black magic and voodoo and hoodoo <laughs> from New Orleans. It's just like it's a I, different level of it is. spooky. <laughs> it's very spooky. So the priestess came and conducted a ceremony. Rivers described this scene as something out of a bad movie with talking and chanting and drumming. Finally, the woman determined that Mrs. Spencer was very angry. In her mind, she was still the grand dame of the building and she did not like changes being made to her house. After the ceremony though, the apartment warmed up immediately and the dog, which had been waiting outside the room, willingly entered for the first time in five months. It seemed that the ceremony had cleansed the space of the angry energy of Mrs. Spencer. The ceremony concluded in the early hours of the morning and the priestess suggested asking the neighbors if they would like their homes cleansed as well. Joan and her new friend rang the bells of the other units in the building and not a single person turned down the offer. It's really great to, and I'm so glad this was part of like the interview that that Joan Rivers gave was she talked about like, here it is, like 2.30 in the morning and you have Joan Rivers knocking on your door with in a the voodoo of the priestess. Night. Be like, hey, this is my friend. She's a voodoo priestess. She just cleansed my unit upstairs. Do you want her to do yours too? Like, how crazy is that? But no one said no to her. And she, and she described it as 
um, nobody slammed the door in her face. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I guess apparently everybody from the building had some kind of story involving the wrath of Mrs. Spencer. So after that, the building had been cleansed. Uh, but then once Joan moved in, things started up again. So the, the chapter isn't quite closed on Mrs. Spencer yet. The dog was once again unhappy and acting up. The cold returned and she could never get any of her electronic things to work properly. Um, it seems that Mrs. Spencer had not quite left for good. Once again distraught, Joan began to plead aloud to Mrs. Spencer. She was a widow and all of her money was tied up in this apartment and all she wanted was peace. Then one day she was down in the basement when she came across a portrait that had been stashed behind drywall and other disused building materials. It was in the basement, you said? Yes. Uh, Joan knew it just had to be a portrait of Mrs. Spencer herself. The old doorman from the building confirmed that the portrait was indeed that of Mrs. Spencer. So how creepy is that like that there's just been this portrait like left in the basement amongst all this other like junk basically and it just happens to be the portrait of the former owner and current ghost <laughs> yeah i mean i wonder my first thought would be like if she's so angry like you should like hang it in the front foyer or something so well it's funny you should maybe, say that okay because uh, Joan cleaned the portrait up and hung it in a place of reverence in the lobby of the building. Shortly after the portrait was hung, the voodoo priestess called Joan and told her, and told her that she had gotten a visit from Mrs. Spencer. So it's cool that, that the priestess called her. She didn't call the priestess. Yeah. Um, so that is like the biggest thing of like, whoa, she's... She's got to be the real deal. So Mrs. Spencer was happy to be back in her rightful place at home. And she liked what had been done with the ballroom. So I guess she liked Joan's taste. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, rich, rich old ladies usually <laughs> have similar interests. Yes. Uh, she especially liked that there were always fresh flowers in the ballroom, so she requested that Joan continue to keep flowers in there. From that point on, the spirit of Mrs. Spencer became a comforting presence in the apartment, and in the early morning hours, she would frequently appear in Joan's bedroom. It's a comfort, Rivers said. It's like she's checking on me. We're friends. I know she's there, and she's there to help me. Joan's life turned around in that apartment and having Mrs. Spencer looking out for her and being there to say goodnight to was always reassuring. Joan Rivers, of course, continued to work and be successful up until her own death in 2014 at the age of 81. Still looking about 40 years younger than she actually was, I might add. Yes, she looked very good. Yes. 
The penthouse was sold to a Saudi prince for $28 million and was recently relisted for $38 million. No word as to whether the ghost of Mrs. Spencer had anything to do with the sale of the apartment or if she gave the prince any issues with any changes he may have done. Well, that's a little fun. I, I love it when there's a mischievous ghost. Yeah, yeah. You know, I it's mean, like they're not really harmful. They're not hurting you, but they're just going to, you know, snap all the heads off of your decorative cherubs. They're, <laughs> they're going to demand that you keep fresh flowers all the time. Well, and honestly, I think I think Joan could probably afford some very nice flowers to always be uh they're at the ready in the ballroom. Yeah, I'm sure she had no problem yes. meeting that demand. But can you just imagine being like making a list and talking to your friend, you know, like, oh, I need to swing by the flower shop because I'm flower shops. And your friend, it's like, oh, is there a special occasion? And you're like, no, my ghost just needs fresh ones because the old ones are looking a little sour. <laughs> yeah the old ones are wilting and mrs spencer will not stand for that <laughs> well, fun very nice yes. um where did you watch the interview yes um that was actually on season one episode one of celebrity uh, oh here i have the name of it i was gonna say it at the end anyway but it was um celebrity ghost stories <laughs> Yeah, that was the very first story on the very first episode of that show. Fun. Yeah, it, it was very entertaining. The reenactments are just so, so like funny because it's it's just very obvious that they're like stretching out what material they can. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, it it was that's a good episode. So, and you can watch it for free uh, from A and E. Oh, okay. So that was fun. I wonder which celebrity has a spooky encounter next. Oh, yes. So the next famous haunting involves old Hollywood's original blonde bombshell and one of the most horrifying murders to ever rock the celebrity scene. We're talking Jean Harlow's haunted house and its connection to Sharon Tate Arguably the most famous victim of the Manson family murders. I literally, just this past week, listened to a whole episode on Morbid about Jean Harlow. Me too. That's That was actually where the, because this was just like a tiny part of the whole episode. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, that would be so good to have that featured in this episode yeah I, knew I wanted to talk about famous people and uh haunting so yeah uh if you want more information on the gene harlow mansion and like the creepiness of around it and just the whole crazy roller coaster tale of gene harlow definitely check out morbid's episode on that um at the end, I'll tell I'll I'll mention what episode because I use them as a source here. So, actress Jean Harlow had a rocky short life, but one where she certainly burned bright. Jean, a natural blonde, had gained a reputation for her near otherworldly shade of hair color. 
She gained major recognition for her roles in such films as Hell's Angels, Dinner at Eight, and Bombshell. Though she would only live to the age of 26, she racked up multiple ex-husbands. In July of 1932, she married Paul Byrne, an executive at MGM. There was a 22-year age difference between the two of them, and Mr. Byrne wasn't exactly considered a handsome match for a stunning starlet like Jean Harlow. Byrne bought his bride an extravagant home at 9820 Easton Drive in Benedict Canyon, Los Angeles, but theirs would not be a happy home. It was rumored that Byrne had hid his impotence from his new wife, as well as a relationship with another woman named Dorothy Millett, who was his common law wife. So common law marriage is a legal framework where a couple may be considered married without having formally registered their relation as a civil or religious marriage. So basically it's like a couple that presents themselves as married without the formal services. Yeah, usually it's for like long-term relationships, right. you know, like a 15-year long relationship where they never got married, but they've just been together for so long and they do everything through each other Mm -hmm. they basically are so here he is splitting his affections and his marital tackle box isn't working (laughs) (laughs) do you like that that description i'm like this is a really good way to to phrase it uh so two months into the marriage joan left to spend some time at her mother's place And while she was gone on September 5th, 1932, Paul Byrne was found naked in his bed with a bullet in his head. Now it's really fishy that the member of the house staff that found him did not call police right away. Instead, he called the head of MGM, Louis B. Mayer. When authorities were finally called two hours later, They were met by Mr. Mayer, who produced a suicide letter uh, that read as follows. My dearest dear, unfortunately, this is the only way to make good the frightful wrong I have done you and wipe out my abject humiliation. I love you, Paul. You understand that last night was only a comedy. So with that his, wait his last line was you understand that last night was only a comedy yep what happened Which is last very night cryptic and it's kind of questionable like did he and gene harlow have a fight um was uh, there's also this possibility that maybe his common law wife the um uh dorothy dorothy had maybe paid him a visit and um, that maybe they had it out. There's a lot of possibilities. It just seems like there's a lot of head scratching behind this cryptic letter. And then there's also the possibility that this was just something that was whipped up by Louis Mayer uh, to cover up the kind of salacious nature of the death of an executive of 
one of the biggest movie producers in the country. Yeah. So it's fishy, but the death was ruled a suicide. Uh, though that there are many that have speculated that foul play may have been involved. So one of the employees suggested that the handwriting in the note didn't match what he recognized as Paul's handwriting. So the tragedy garnered much attention, especially after the other woman, so Dorothy Millette, jumped off a steamboat called the Delta King to her death. Uh, but as stated earlier, the case was closed as a suicide. With so, Dorothy or with? Um... Uh, with? For both of them. Okay. So it makes me wonder, like, is that the act of uh, someone with a guilty conscience? Like, or is it a broken heart? It could, yes, exactly. And it, I don't think she left any indication as to which it was. Um, so that's even more mysterious. Mm-hmm. So Jean managed to marry and divorce one more time before her health took a turn for the worse. While filming the movie Saratoga in 1937, Harlow fell so ill that she had to be hospitalized. Her kidneys were failing and on June 7th of that year, after having slipped into a coma, Hollywood's most famous blonde passed away. It's a really sad story that, and also the fact that her mom was kind of like pushing her was kind of being like a, like a typical stage mom of like, Oh, she'll be fine. She'll be she'll be back next week to resume filming. Um, and then like, and she she was in such bad health that she died. Yeah. And granted, kidney failure in the 1930s, I don't know what would have been what sort of options there would have been, but um, she had been like misdiagnosed like a several times. Yeah, which is really tragic. And I remember they said that a lot of the uh, contributing factors to her, both her kidneys failing, was the way that they dyed her hair. So her hair was almost like almost silver. It was so blonde that it was basically white. Yeah, and they were you. They were weren't they just weren't they using like Clorox to bleach? They were using like actual bleach. But then also some other, I can't remember, but it was like, a, it was like a crazy concoction and they would yeah, do it every single it was, week. I remember it was like Clorox and uh, Lux soap flakes. Yes, and then there might've been yes. like one other thing, but yeah, it was just, they, they did not realize what they were doing to her physical health by the, the treatments that she was receiving so that's a a whole tragedy on its own yeah so in 1963 the house where jean harlow had spent some of her most tumultuous marriages was leased by celebrity hairstylist extraordinaire jay sebring he had worked on the sets of such legendary films as spartacus how the west was won the great escape and the Thomas Crown affair. And so he he would like specialized in like the like the hairstyles for the leading men. Okay. And I also read that and I thought it was kind of interesting that he was kind of responsible for a lot of 
um, kind of like a, a boom in the industry of like men's hair products and stuff. And like that he had started his own company for like men's, like men's care kind of products. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it mean, and he was working with the, like the superstars in the industry. So Seabrain, who was known for being handsome and charming, had dated actress Sharon Tate between 1964 and 1966. Tate often stayed at the house with Seabrain, but on one occasion, while Seabrain was out of town, she stayed at the house by herself. That night, alone in the old Harlow house, would later be documented in an eerie 1968 interview with Dick Kleiner of Fate magazine, which I I had never heard of Fate magazine before, but it is the longest running magazine devoted to the subject of the paranormal. Ooh, why don't I know about this? Right? And apparently it's been it's been in publication since like the 1940s. And I, w- I was looking up because I was kind of like seeing like, I wonder if I could find this issue that has this interview in it and like, like on eBay or something. And uh, a lot of the, the older issues are in that kind of like Reader's Digest size. Like they're like short, uh-huh. kind of more um, like short squat rather than a full size kind of magazine. Um, but yeah, they, I mean, they cover some really interesting topics like everything from you know ufos to cryptids to like it sounds like a fun magazine to read it really does even if you're just curious or just want like a good tale um but yeah they're they're pretty like serious about it which i think is really cool so tate was alone and feeling uneasy in the room where paul byrne had died She described being in a state of half asleep and half awake and having a dreamlike experience that night. She heard noises and when she turned on the light, she saw what a creepy little man that looked a lot like Paul burned to her. He bumbled through the room, bumping into furniture, seemingly not knowing where he was or what he was doing. Whatever the ghostly figure was doing, he didn't seem to take notice of Sharon. And she put on a robe and slipped out of the room. So starters, like, how do you not just instantly just shriek at the top of your lungs? It's... Yeah, I mean, and like, I'm. does this look like a actual person, like a solid person? Or is it more of like an apparition kind of like yeah like are they kind of a little see-through or do they look like a real person standing there in front of you because i can understand like if it it was like kind of see-through like you kind of i would probably stop and stare for a few seconds but you know as i'm thinking about what i'm seeing whereas if it was like a a true human in my house I'd be like, what, get out? Or <laughs> I would be out the door as quick as them. Right. And, and well, and also I'm wondering if she thought that, like if she was in this kind of half dream, half awake state, that if it just felt like it was a dream. And maybe. That, like, and that like in your dream state, you're 
like you're kind of just on autopilot like you're kind of just gliding through it like you're the camera in a film scene uh-huh so that could be that could be it um but yeah and also that i i thought about the like why paul byrne would be bumbling around his old bedroom where he died and i and i thought like oh they, they probably moved the furniture. Like the, the furniture is probably set up. He probably isn't used to the new setup. No, this He's nightstand like, shouldn't be here. Yeah, just bumping into the dresser and we're like, what? I didn't put this here. So she ran down the stairs, but was horrified to see another specter slumped over on the staircase. The figure was tied to a banister and its throat had been slashed. What? The most, right? The most terrifying part of this encounter, though, was that she thought that the figure looked a lot like her and admitted that the encounter felt like a premonition. Which that is so scary given what happens. If I don't know right? if you'll get to it. Yes. But... Yes, we will. Uh, and and what's interesting, like she she talks about how it looked like it was either herself or it was Jay. Like, and like it must have like kind of gone back and forth in the in the dim light. Sure, and, but it oh, it just gives me goosebumps thinking about it. Like seeing what you what you see as yourself bleeding out on the staircase. So she snuck past the figure on the staircase and headed to the room where Jay kept the alcohol. Because with all this freaky stuff happening, uh, I need to settle down with like a drink or like give me a bottle or something to, <laughs> right. to be like, I I need to calm my nerves down. Like, I don't know how else I could handle that. Um, so the bar was concealed behind a wall where a book would have to be pulled and then there was like a button to reveal, um, so there's like a shelf would swing out and reveal the liquor cabinet. So it's a James uh, Bond bar. It really is. So since the house was built during prohibition, like of course it's got like a cool secret bar, um, which if I ever walked into a house and they're like, oh, by the way, yes, there was a murder that happened here, but look at this bar that swings out, like hidden bar, I'd be like sold. When can I move in? Like maybe the ghosts are good drinking buddies. I don't know. <laughs> well, they don't call them spirits for nothing. <laughs> so Sharon found the control to open the bar and she made a drink to settle her nerves. But she still couldn't tell if she was really dreaming. She pinched herself yet couldn't feel it. But something inside her told her to tear a tiny piece of wallpaper off the wall before returning to bed. She did just that and then walked past the figure on the staircase, which was still there gushing blood at this point. And what in the world, like, and she, and again, went past the creepy little man in the bedroom and just went back to sleep. How and, much did she drink? Right. I like that must have been the world's strongest cocktail that she mixed because <laughs> I have no idea how you would be able to go back to sleep, especially if it's like, well, 
the creepy little man is still in the room with me, but I guess he's not hurting me. He's not noticing me. I guess I'll just try and like cover up with the covers and go back to bed. So it's, you know, kudos to you, Sharon, for, for just being able to power through and go back to bed. <laughs> the next day, JC Breen had returned from New York and asked Sharon how her stay had been. Sharon relayed the terrible dream to Jay, but when they went downstairs, they found the drink cabinet was still out and open and there were scraps of wallpaper laying on the floor. So everything that Sharon had experienced may very well have been real. Uh, and it was the only solitary paranormal encounter that she had experienced in her whole life. So she had never had any kind of weird experiences like this before. And the fact that like the wallpaper was torn and that she at the very least got out of bed yeah. and did all of these things it really makes me wonder if she she really did see what she claims to have I seen. think she did because if she remembers opening the bar and tearing mm -hmm. off the wallpaper then she for sure would remember other events that happened as well yeah it, it makes sense to me so the following year in August of 1969 uh, so at this point Sharon Tate had married Roman Polanski, the a very famous film director, and she was very heavily pregnant with her, her and Roman Polanski's first child. Um, I think at this point, I think she was something like eight months pregnant. She was, it was yeah. eight months. Um, uh, Sharon Tate, as well as Jay Sebring, were among the victims of the Helter Skelter murders committed by the followers of Charles Manson. Is it possible that that night alone in the Harlow house was a warning from the spirit of Paul Byrne? Or perhaps just more restless spirits plagued by pain and suffering? Chances are that we may never know the truth. And from what I know about the Manson cult attack on the Tate home, um, they did tie people up, you know? Yeah, and that's what is so spooky. And the fact that this was like a documented interview, um, you know, there it was really kind of, there was nothing else for her to suggest that she might've been in danger. Cause this, I, I believe when so one of her friends, I think had rented that house that, that where the attack happened, I believe. And it was just like a normal night, like in good company. I mean, uh, it was just like a group of, you know, wealthy people hanging out with other wealthy people. Yeah, it was just like a really nice summer evening mm -hmm. that went terribly wrong. Yeah. And boy, it is, that is a, a case in itself. That it is. It yes. Of course is. We'll have um, to talk do you know what the state of the house is today? Um, the of the the Jean Harlow's house or the the house where the uh, murder happened? Um, 
she lived in Jean Harlow's house when she had the the visions, right? When she saw the ghosts. Um, the that was uh, Jay Sebring's place. Okay. So front when um, so she was just staying the night. Like okay. She was, okay. Got it. And I I think that must have been, I think it was probably after they were no longer like a couple, but I think that she would still sometimes just like come over and yeah hang out I think because it seemed like they were well obviously they stayed friends after they were no longer like an item um but yeah uh I know that that the house from the um the Manson murders is no longer I that they tore it down oh and they, okay and they they built another house and like with the new address and everything um which is like kind of probably good to just be like let's get that those bad vibes out but also like a little I'm a little bummed because it's like a time capsule of of a different time right Uh, yeah but at at the same time it's like yeah let's just like move on from like still remember but like let's not let this murder site be the the site of like the gathering point to remember people like let's let their memorials be places to remember them instead mm-hmm. um but yeah um as far as i know the harlow house though is still around um i'm not sure who owns it now but uh it is still out there okay well maybe it's worth finding out and yes Taking a little road trip. (laughs) Well, that last story uh, makes me want to do like one of those haunted Hollywood tours. Oh my God. I would, that's the first thing I would want to do. I've never actually been to California. I need to go. Yeah, you do. Lovely. While it's still there. (laughs) Okay, Chris, what do we have next? Okay, so next we have uh, a story from the Queen of Mean herself, Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford, for all you children, (laughs) is a 90s icon. (laughs) Which is funny because I was like, long after her death uh, and long after the movie Mommy Dearest came out, like, so good. Mm -hmm. Uh, So now while... Joan Crawford's reputation has mostly been colored by her adopted daughter, Christine's 1978 bombshell memoir, Mommy Dearest. It may be possible that the Oscar-winning actress was battling with more than just her personal demons while she lived at her home in Brentwood, California. So maybe some uh, physical demons as well? (laughs) Yeah, maybe some, some ghoulies. So Joan Crawford purchased a 10-room house at 426 North Bristol Avenue in the late 1920s after her success in the film Our Dancing Daughters. Over the course of Crawford's occupation of the house, it underwent numerous additions and and facelifts. It would seem, though, that the address was more than just a place where an unhappy childhood was spent for Crawford's children. It may have been an astral dumping ground of tortured souls. 
Ooh, like <laughs> built on haunted ground or I, they just it, all went there for some reason. I could see it being either, uh, especially when we get further into this story. I, I'd i be willing to buy either of those okay, well, possibilities. I'm excited. <laughs> when Christina Crawford was asked in the late 80s about the possibility that the Brentwood home had been haunted, she was surprised to be asked. It was something of a well-kept secret. Not many people knew that the house I grew up in may be haunted, she said. It is not in print anywhere. Christina explained that her, in her childhood home where abuse was occurring regularly, it was hard to remember some things. When abuse is at the forefront of your life, you tend to block out other things. But as a child, she does recall seeing things and experiencing spots in the house that were so cold that no one ever wanted to go there. I'm already going to say that this house is haunted because children are so much more susceptible than adults. Exactly. Children and dogs. Mm-hmm. Like, pay attention to where they will and will not go. Exactly. Well, children, use your best judgment. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, if the if their child is like, I hear creepy ghost children in the next room, I would say, okay, let's maybe have the house exercised or yes, something. Yep. But uh, yeah, it's always it always seemed like that's the horror movie moment where it's like the kids see something and they bring it up, and then the parents are like, you just you're just you have such an active imagination Mm -hmm. you're so creative yes and then it turns out that they're all gonna gonna be sucked down to hell or something yep it's like mommy you should have listened to little little becky you know is her last thoughts as a demon is dragging her to hell (laughs) right why didn't i listen I had nobody to speak to about the occurrences, Christina went on to say. Anytime I would become extremely frightened and would get out of my bed to try and find somebody, I was always treated as if I were being a bad child that didn't want to sleep. The solution to Christina's frequent nightmares and sightings was finally to just keep some of the lights on at all times. But even with the lights on, she still sometimes got a glimpse of a phantom child. The last time Christina Crawford set foot in the Brentwood house was the day she left for college in 1956. She walked through every room in the house, taking taking it all in. When the housekeeper asked what she was doing, Christina told her, that she would never see that house again and that she was saying goodbye. And true to her word, Christina never did see that house ever again. And it kind of makes me think that she's like, not only saying goodbye to it like as a physical place, but maybe it's like, okay, all of you phantom people, children, whoever else is here, like, I'll see you when I see you. Maybe. That is kind of like a goodbye to them too. Yeah. I mean, knowing the, the, the life that she lived in the house, you know, if what she says is true, um, Mm -hmm. combined with these, 
you know, paranormal activities. I don't think it was more of like walking through reminiscing all the happy times we had here. So one of the big bombshells in her memoir, Mommy Dearest, was that um, when she was around the age of 13, she claims that Joan Crawford tried to like strangle her, like kill her. So she talks about like, she got this like look on her face and was just absolutely like diabolical and was like tried to kill her so that was kind of one of the big so i'm sure she was not thinking of like oh that's the the spot where my my mom almost murdered me Mm -hmm. such loving happy times yeah uh and there is a fantastic scene in the movie adaptation of mommy dearest that is that exact scene which i love so much it's truly iconic so the house remained in joan crawford's name until 1960 when she sold it to actor donald o'connor who lived there until 1975 that year it was purchased by investor gary berwin who in turn sold it in 1978 to actor and producer anthony newley in 1981 a developer named Robert Crow bought the house with his wife, Nancy, who several years later would keep the house in their divorce. Uh, so, and meanwhile, like as the, the house is changing hands, like everybody seems to put on like another addition or like another little detail. Um, so this house keeps kind of growing okay. uh, as with each passing Uh, owner. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then in October of 1987, there was a fire on the second floor that damaged about 10% of the house. So repairs were made and Nancy stayed until 1996 when she sold the property for over $1.5 million. So I think she got a pretty good deal there. Yes, she did. Yeah. Um, so in the early nineties, it must've been Nancy Crow who called in the assistance of Reverend Rosalind Bruyere of the Healing Light Center to work with the house. So, you know, things are, are not going well when you have to like call in like a reverend to work on your house. Yes. Uh, I don't think they're just going to be adjusting your uh, hinges on your doors. (laughs) I think they're doing a different type of work. Yes. So apparently Christina Crawford wasn't the only one who had unusual encounters in the house. According to Reverend Bruyere, the house was teeming with spirits. Now, what I think is really fascinating, too, is that like the subsequent owners of the house like a lot of people had kind of either like rocky relationships or like trouble with alcoholism or like so there were like these other problems and some people think that um that that is partially the house's fault so reverend briere in one room sensed signs of ritual abuse and she felt many of the spirits had some sort of underworld connections. 
The fire, which had occurred in 1987, long after Joan Crawford's death in 1977, happened mysteriously at the wall where the head of Joan's bed had been. Wow. Other people claim to have heard the cries of children in the walls. That's some spooky stuff. Yeah. Do we know, like, but it wouldn't be like Joan Crawford's children crying because Joan, because right, they're Cindy, still alive. Yeah. yeah. And also her daughter's the one that was like, I, I see and hear things. Especially like phantom children. Yeah. Like that makes me wonder, like, what the hell happened here? And if before? they're screaming, that's even so much more creepier. So Christina said that she would not be surprised if it was her adopted mother's vengeful spirit causing havoc to the subsequent owners, as she believed her to be capable of great evil. So she thought that, like, maybe the reason this wall started on fire. Which, by the way, the 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 local or the local fire department spent four days trying to figure out why this wall caught fire, and they couldn't figure it out. That's is, spook- That's just spooky. Even without paranormal activity, it's just like yeah, it's oh, just, just a wall that catches fire. Yeah. Um, so that that's Christina's theory is that it might be her mother her mother's angry spirit but reverend bruyere thinks that the house was poisoned long before joan crawford even bought the place the evil that had been there from the start very likely exacerbated her neurosis so that could be a reason like why maybe joan crawford had acted extra crazy and sometimes violent uh it could maybe it was a little bit of the paranormal interacting with her already kind of fragile state. Yeah. It's like the, the evil spirits in the house are like feeding on her mental and emotional, like instability in yeah, yeah, instabilities. Could, Cause you know, if, if that stuff really is true, it would make total sense that somebody who has a volatile personality like Joan Crawford would be just a prime tenant for a place like this mm-hmm. that they would and that could be why maybe this place uh seemed to be like attracting spirits yeah maybe that could be a, that's a possibility uh so the reverend performed an exorcism at the house and found an abundance of negative energy in the building she called it an astral central where spirits were attracted by negative vibrations. She picked up on gangsters, corrupt politicians, a tortured child, and others that had been tied up and beaten. The house was an absolute whirlpool of bad vibes that attracted spirits of all kinds. The Reverend believed that it was the spirits causing the fire and that it was their attempt to burn the place to the ground in order to conceal some kind of horrible secret. She believes that there may even be bodies buried in the basement. What do we know what year this house was built? Well, uh, so it must, it's a very old house because 
Joan Crawford bought the already existing house in like 1928 or 29, right around there. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, so it's, it's probably at least from the twenties. Uh, yeah. And could be even older than that. And who knows if, um, if there had been other structures there before the house was built. Yeah. Or... I'm thinking that's what it'd have to be because if it's not like a super old house, then how are all these terrible events happening? And it's extremely suspicious. Yeah. So since the exorcism though, there have not been any major reports of paranormal activity, but the questions remain, is Joan still stalking the halls of her own old home? Did something sinister happen there even before Joan bought the house? Or is there something else lurking in that location that draws unhappy spirits to cause trouble? So yeah, is it just like, is this a geographical point that just draws bad vibes and like sucks in angry and like mean ghosts? Or did something really awful happen in that space you know, now maybe like a hundred years ago. What if it is kind of a combination of the both where it's a geographical point that just has like really, really bad vibes. So bad things just continued to occur there as time went on. Like I, it's, it's certainly possible. It's really fun to speculate. That's my theory. Yeah. It's a bad place that draws bad people, which create <laughs> bad things to happen. It's very possible. <laughs> no, no word on on who the newest owners are or like what they've been doing. Like I looked at so on one of my sources, there was it just kind of showed how the house had transformed um, over the years, uh-huh. and it looks so different today than what it originally looked like, and. Um, it's it looks a lot more modern because of all these additions that have been put on and like things have been torn down and built up again and uh i mean it's it's totally transformed so Hmm. i could also see joan being like what have you done with my house (laughs) yeah it totally would fit her personality from what i remember yeah Though uh, it should be noted that she, when she passed away, she passed away in New York because at the end of her life, she had been married to the president of Pepsi Cola. And um, that's where their headquarters was Mm -hmm. in New York City. So um, she was spending most of her time out there in New York. and oh, I forgot to put this in, but I think it's super interesting to note is that one of the last things that she's recorded to say was something along the line. Like, so there was like a woman and so th- this woman was like praying at the foot of Joan Crawford's bed and her last words were something like, don't you dare ask God to help me or something like that. So it's this very kind of arrogant, kind of eerie last uh last words i guess yeah very that's that's confirmed but um it's very interesting to think of that as the the 
uh, especially considering what she might have experienced through her life in, you know, in that house in Brentwood. Yeah, so for sure. She might have uh, had a little bit of a beef with the, the big guy <laughs> upstairs. Maybe. <laughs> well, Chris, um, you've definitely had some exciting and um, fun and not so fun uh, <laughs> celebrity encounter with the ghosts. Yes. Um, before we get into number four, though, I just wanted to let you know when we first started talking about uh, Joan Crawford and her home at the top of the ep- or the top of the story, I was like, in the '90s, Joan Crawford was the it girl. Um, I was thinking of Cindy Crawford. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered because I I would have thought like that by the '90s that Mommy Dearest had kind of gotten and gone to like cult classic territory yeah but no you were thinking of a different Crawford that's I was thinking that's hilarious. of I believe it was guest jeans or Calvin Klein jeans that she infamously modeled oh yes was that the uh um what gets between me and my Calvin's something along Nothing. those lines like what I'm that was was that her I might have to fact check that later. Anyway, Cindy Crawford was a very popular model in the 90s. Yes. Who was not Joan Crawford. <laughs> not it, not Joan Crawford. No. Uh no. Joan Crawford was the it girl of like the 30s and 40s. <laughs> um but um I'm excited to hear number 4. So I have one more short haunting story for you uh because I just had to squeeze in this one because it involves one of my favorite singers of all time, Amy Winehouse. Now, I've heard, I've heard like not elaborate stories, but that Amy was like prone to have like some some sort of like encounters or like feelings. I feel like I read this somewhere. Oh, well, I'm so I'm focused on uh, this time. Amy is the ghost. Oh, um, but I would love to to know uh, any encounters that she had had with with ghosts before. Um, it so also just... might have just been like her personality. You know, people yeah. were like, she's a spooky girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's a rebel. She's she's out there. Yeah. Um, but so Amy is a ghost. As a ghost, yes. Okay. So now Amy was only 27 years old when she passed away from alcohol poisoning on July 23rd, 2011. Well, she had spent much of her public life living a hard drinking and smoking lifestyle, publicly sharing her struggles with addiction through her lyrics. Through books, interviews, and an Oscar-winning documentary, it became clear that Amy lived a tumultuous and passionate short life. It's no surprise that she not only left a handprint on the hearts of loved ones, but may have stuck around to keep an eye on them. Even though Amy had an up and down relationship with her father, Mitch Winehouse, it's no question that she loved him. Ever since her passing, he claims to have been visited by the spirit of his daughter. 
we do have our moments, particularly on her birthday, September 14th. It's hard. After three years, I was thinking that maybe she would come back in some shape or form. And she does come, and, and she does come back. Not physically, but spiritually. All the time. I could not begin to tell you how much she is around. And that's, that's a, a quote. That's a yeah. quote from her father. That it sounds like it sounds like he likes the fact that, you know, she's still around. Right. Yeah. That I, I think it sounds like it's a reassuring thing that to know that her presence is still uh -huh. somehow. Yep. So Amy's father claims that she will come and sit at the end of his bed as beautiful as she ever was. And he asks her if she's all right, but her presence is always calming and reassuring. Sometimes she appears not as a human, but as a blackbird. So Amy had a blackbird tattoo on her right arm with the phrase, never clip my wings, which honestly how perfect, mm -hmm. like how appropriate. Um, so it seemed like an omen when a blackbird crashed into the window one night at the Winehouse home. They picked up the dazed bird and set it on a perch but the bird flew back and sat on Mr. Winehouse's foot. When they put once again, put it back on the perch, it came back and sang for them. And what is also interesting, I guess, apparently like these birds don't normally do a lot of flying at night. So seems, well, I think, I think they said it was a blackbird. Just any blackbird. Well, a blackbird is like a type of bird. Oh, like okay. an actual, you okay. know, like the Got song. It. Blackbird yes. singing. Bluebird. Yes. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Uh, so now, uh, so now like after that encounter, they seem to see blackbirds all the time. And they think of the sightings as visits from Amy. And also how perfect like the bird sang for them. And like, mm -hmm. she was this amazing talent, vocal talent in, in life. Yeah. I mean, I think that definitely has some weight to being true and factual like mm -hmm. this like I don't know it's... I know I feel like a lot of people have strange little animal encounters sometimes mm -hmm. and and where like an animal is just acting not like an animal and like and is just like weirdly calm or weirdly tame or like seems to be like reaching out to you yeah personally. like it's like they came to you yeah you know that's like i remember one time there was i came out to my car after work and there was a cat sitting on top of my car oh i love and that was, and it was just like hey little cat like what's up like and it was so friendly and it would like and like i just petted it like i'd had a collar so it was obviously a neighborhood cat uh-huh and and, and it was just like, okay, I got to go home now. And like the cat was just like, I'm going to stay here on your car for a little bit. And it just makes me wonder like, did, was the cat like there to distract me? So like, I wouldn't get in a car accident or something. Maybe slow you down. Yeah. Or maybe, or maybe it's just somebody from beyond saying hello. Yeah. Like, an old, an old family member or friend. Yeah. That 
Just wanted to say hi. Yeah, just reaching out through an animal. Uh I don't know. It's it makes me wonder. Um, but anyway, so her family is not the only one to have spotted Amy from the afterlife. Close friend and fellow singer Pete Doherty of the band Libertines claims to have had visions of Amy in his flat after her passing. And he was so frightened that he fled to Paris. So uh, Doherty, who was also known for being a hardcore party animal. So he was, uh, in fact, he had actually been in prison for cocaine possession uh, shortly before that. Hmm. Um, So this was another fellow party animal. Um, And and he was seeing visions of Amy like in his home and he wondered if it was um, the spirit of Amy warning him to uh, like that it's not too late to sober up and like yeah. don't, don't die young like I did um, and some people think that like okay like you're known for dr- your drug use like this is clearly you having a hallucination, but right. he's claimed that he's been sober since uh, those sightings. So it's very possible that maybe message received. Yeah, I mean, yeah, very much so. And if she didn't visit after the fact that he didn't get sober, maybe there's no reason to visit him again. Right. And I, w- I wish there was a more follow-up articles I could find because... B- the main articles that I could find were all about him like fleeing to Paris because he wanted to get away from his his flat um but I imagine if you like see the full-on ghost of your recently deceased like party-going friend like that would be something that you might have to take a little time to reflect on and maybe reevaluate your life and your choices. Yeah. Yeah. So there we go. That was a short one. And yeah, I would, I think I have had dreams. So every now and then I get a celebrity in my dreams. Really? And I, uh, and I'm pretty sure at some point I've had Amy Winehouse in, in one of my dreams. Huh? Uh, I, I love it when I get celebrities I don't there. think I've ever had a celebrity in any of my dreams. Oh my gosh. I, uh, you, you want to know who shows up the most though? Oh, you have returning. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> oh, I've, I've got like a, a full on cast in my dreams. Uh, Dolly Parton shows up a lot. Hmm. I would take her. I would absolutely love it. Dolly, if you're out there listening, give me a call. I will. <laughs> I'd love to chat. I'd love to. I'd love to do a duet. <laughs> Hopefully when I'm not like fighting off a cold, but yes, uh, yeah. call me Dolly. <laughs> so those are my uh, hauntings of the rich and famous that I have for you today. Well, thanks for sharing. I definitely um, like, you know, I heard some new thing about mm-hmm. like celebrities that I never was like, the very first one, I never would expect like Joan Rivers having like a haunted ballroom apartment. Yeah. 
so cool. That lets her boss her around, you know? <laughs> right, that she makes friends with. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, but yeah, that was um, a very fun start to our spooktober. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought we had to get it started right with some proper ghost stories featuring some really fascinating characters. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, here, I'll go through my sources real quick. Um, sure. So you season one, episode one of Celebrity Ghost Stories, um, Pew Research Center, Forbes, Marie Claire, The Claremont Sun, um, Hollywood and the Supernatural by Sherry Hansen Steger and Brad Steger, uh, the concluding chapter of Crawford.com, Newsweek, The Daily Mail, nme.com and morbid episode 265 there we go very nice yeah and that episode of morbid was really a fun one to listen to so it was now that you've wrapped up this episode now you have our permission to go and listen to that one now yeah (laughs) (laughs) but only because you finished with us and you made it to the end now that you finished your vegetables (laughs) All right. Well, um, I'm excited for the rest of Spooktober. Absolutely. Me too. Um, I'm really excited to like share my cases, which again, like I could go on for a spooky year at that point, <laughs> but, um, and I'm excited to hear what else you bring. Absolutely. I, the gears are turning. <laughs> All right. Well, everyone, thank you for coming and the continuing support. Uh, We love having you here and we'll always welcome you back. Every single week. Yes. And until next time. Bye. Bye.